Today's episode contains descriptions of rape and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. In October of 1996, 19-year-old Christy Nickel headed out into the town of Grand Forks, North Dakota for a night of bingo. Christy had been diagnosed with a developmental disability and had the mental skills of a 10-year-old. However, she was fiercely independent and was never held back from being a bubbly, friendly, and social person who was well-liked around town. On the night of October 3rd, Christy would play bingo before attempting to visit a friend in downtown Grand Forks. After finding that the friend was not at home, Nikki would leave the area on foot and never be seen again. This is Midwest Mystery Files, Episode 22, The Disappearance of Christy Nickel. Hello everyone, and welcome to Midwest Mystery Files. I'm your host, Jeremiah, with just a few quick things before we start. Midwest Mystery Files is a true crime podcast focused on missing and murdered cases within the Midwestern region of the United States. I can be found on all major podcast platforms as well as on YouTube with delayed episodes. Social media and contact info will be listed at the end of the episode. If you wish to support the podcast and help fund article and record searches, as well as get early access to episodes, bonus episodes, and voting rights, I encourage you to check out my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash midwestmysteryfiles. If you're not looking for perks, but want to just help out one time, I am on Venmo at MidwestPod. I'm currently sitting at one patron, so I would like to thank Laura for her help. Now, on to today's case. On the banks of the Red River in northeastern North Dakota sits the city of Grand Forks. Grand Forks is the biggest city in the state after Fargo and Bismarck. Today's case takes us there, where in 1996, a young woman would go out for a game of bingo, but unfortunately would never return home. And almost 26 years later, there is still zero sign of her. Christy Lynn Nickel was born November 8, 1976. From what I could find, she has a father named Mike and at least one brother named Lonnie. Christy grew up in Grand Forks, North Dakota, and at a young age was diagnosed with a developmental disability. Christy's exact diagnosis has never been stated, but it's been noted that Christy, as an adult, had the mental abilities of a 10-year-old. Despite her diagnosis, however, she has been reported to be very bubbly, social, independent, and street smart, and would often be seen downtown going from place to place on her own. By all accounts, Christy was well-known around town and well-liked by everyone that knew her. In line with her sociable personality, Christy enjoyed playing bingo and did so quite often at the local bingo hall, according to her father, Mike Nickel. This was Christy's plan on the evening of Thursday, October 3, 1996. According to Mike, that evening, Christy left with an unnamed friend to head to the bingo hall. Christy reportedly had a good night winning around $500. While Christy was most likely having a blast that night, a sense of worry would be overtaking Mike Nickel. As stated before, it wasn't unusual for Christy to go out with friends or on her own. However, if she was going to be away for a long time, she would generally call Mike to give him a heads up. Mike would tell the Grand Forks Herald in 2021, quote, She always told me where she was going to be. I mean... If she was going to spend the night or something, she'd call me right away. When I was at work, she would call me and say, Hey, 
I'm going to do this, or I'm going to be doing that. She always let me know what she was going to be doing. According to Mike, the time around which Christy would generally be home had come and gone, and as the hours continued to pass, he would grow continuously more worried. The next morning, October 4th, Christy still hadn't returned. It was at this juncture that Mike would attempt to file a missing persons report, but police would reportedly inform him that he needed to wait 72 hours due to the fact that Christy was 19 years old and an adult. The family would begin their own searches, checking the bingo hall and other normal hangouts that Christy frequented at the time. The searches by family would be to no avail, though, and they would formally report Christy missing on October 10th, 1996. In December of 1996, Grand Forks Police Lieutenant Kerwin Kelstrom would tell the Grand Forks Herald that through their investigation, they knew that Christie was last seen leaving an apartment on South 3rd Street in downtown Grand Forks. Christie had reportedly gone to the apartment in search of her boyfriend. Witnesses would tell investigators that when he wasn't there, Christie became visibly upset and left on foot. The unnamed boyfriend would later be given a polygraph test, which would conclude that he had no idea about Christie's whereabouts. The article would also note that initial searches for Christie focused on the banks of the Red River, within the city limits, concentrating on the downtown area. Third Avenue, where Christie was last seen, runs parallel to the Red River. Dog searches were also performed east and south of town for any sign of Christie's whereabouts. Since the last search, which had occurred at that point on November 6th, Investigators had been running down rumors and tips they had received. There had been no confirmed sightings of Christie since her disappearance, and Kelstrom told the Herald that at that time he had no evidence of foul play, but it was something that was always a possibility in a missing person's case. Over the next year, no strong leads would arise, and Christie's family would begin to grow frustrated at the lack of leads, and would even begin doing their own investigating to try and locate their missing family member. In October 5, 1997 article, Jeanette Nickel, Christie's grandma, would tell the Grand Forks Herald, quote, We're just hoping and praying. It's hard to take. We can't have a funeral or anything like that. We don't know if she's dead. Christie's aunt, Darlene Stevens, would be quoted as saying, quote, We grew up in the old school where a mom always finds out the truth sooner or later. Our family is like a big puzzle. With Christy gone, it's like there's a big piece missing. Another aunt, who went unnamed, would state, quote, I've lost a year of my life to investigating this case. Things I should take care of. I haven't opened up all my mail from the last year. Darlene Stevens would tell the Herald that the reason the family was putting so much effort and trying to be proactive was that they were upset and frustrated with the Grand Forks Police Department, as well as the fact that they've never made a solid determination on if foul play was involved. To this, Lieutenant Kelstrom would tell the Herald, quote, We'd have to have something that points us in that direction. We'd have to have something happen before we could do that. Darlene would go on to state, quote, They haven't done anything. Christie isn't going to come to them while they're sitting in the office. She would also claim to know about evidence and witnesses the police hadn't considered or looked at. Lieutenant Kelstrom, in referring to the alleged witnesses, would state, quote, You have to be careful that you respect their rights in an investigation. 
but police can ask people to cooperate, and they have in this case. But if you press the issue so far, you might get a visit by their attorney. Kellstrom would go on to state that he understood the frustration of the family, but would defend what police had done so far, stating that he had double-checked witness stories, brought in search dogs, and had coordinated efforts with local law enforcement agencies and searches. He would finish out the article stating, quote, I wish I could do more for them. I've kept working on this case for a year. This is going to haunt me forever. It's my case. I want some resolution to it. But right now, we're kind of at a standstill. At this point, getting the word out is the best thing anyone can do. In a missing persons investigation, the more people talk about it, the better the chances are that police will get a tip that could solve the case. While the fear of foul play would be valid for the family of any missing person, something that most likely exasperated the Nickel family's concern, is something that was never mentioned in the earlier articles I read, but was brought up in 2021. In a September 2021 article from the Grand Forks Herald, Lonnie Nickel, Christie's brother, would note that while street smart, Christie had an extremely trusting nature, so much so that police now considered her a high-risk victim. Lonnie would tell the Herald, quote, If you offered her, like, a piece of candy to get in someone's car, she would go. She would do anything if you asked her to do something. She would be gone, no questions asked. I mean, people would take advantage of her just to get things that she has, like a jacket, or anything. You could offer her a cigarette, and she'd take it. Christie's father, Mike Nickel, would state in the same article that shortly before Christie disappeared, she had turned two neighbor kids in for a drug deal, and Mike always wondered if her disappearance was some sort of retaliation to that. If this information was known to investigators in the early years of the investigation, it's easy to understand the family's frustration. In June of 1998, water rescue teams would be used for the first time to search the banks of the Red River. Green Forks police would note that there was no major breaks in the case that led to the search, but the water was at a low enough point that it seemed the perfect time to try a more expansive search. Unfortunately, no sign of Christie could be found. In September of 1998, an unnamed witness, who had reported seeing Christie a few days after she was reported missing, came to the Grand Forks Police Department to tell his story again. Grand Forks Police Detective Mike Scholes would tell the Grand Forks Herald that there were some discrepancies between his original story from 1996 and the one that he was telling at the time in 1998. However, the man was extremely persistent, leading Scholes to believe the witness may be reliable. To clear up the discrepancies, a forensic hypnotist was brought in to hypnotize the witness. While under hypnosis, the man alleged he saw Christie a few days after she was reported missing. He stated she was standing with a group of people who were hanging around a car in the 100 block of South 3rd Street, close to the same area where she had last been seen on October 3rd. The man claimed that Nikki looked out of place with the group, and that he had approached her and informed her that she had been reported missing. He would state that she seemed unconcerned and eventually became annoyed with the man, informing him that she didn't need any help. He would later report this exchange to the police. Detective Scholes said the man gave a detailed description of the vehicle the group was around, as well as several of the people in the group, although he didn't know any names. Based off of the descriptions, Scholes believed investigators had already spoken with several of the individuals, 
but he was going to attempt to speak with them again. Schultz clarified that none of the individuals were suspects, but they could possibly place an exact date for the sighting, as well as lead investigators to other people who may have more information. The article would also be the first time I could find that police said they believed foul play was suspected in Christie's disappearance, a suspicion that would be fortified only two months later, when a new individual would come to investigators' attention. In November of 1998, investigators would reveal they were looking at 38-year-old Floyd Todd Tapson. Detective Mike Scholes would become aware of Tapson after being informed by authorities in Billings, Montana, that Tapson had worked in a group home and lived in around Grand Forks in 1996. Tapson had been arrested in Montana on October 9, 1998, for the abduction, rape, and attempted murder of a 22-year-old developmentally disabled woman. On October 8, 1998, the woman had visited a group home for the developmentally disabled that Tapson was employed at in Billings. The woman had come to visit a friend, and upon leaving was offered a ride by Tapson. Tapson took the woman to his home, and upon her refusing to have sex with him, Tapson brandished a 25 caliber handgun and led her to his basement where he restrained her with handcuffs and rope before leaving the home. He returned later and raped her before leading her out of his home and to his car. Tapson then drove the woman to a rural area outside of Billings, made her exit the car, and then shot her in the face from approximately five feet away. She would then raise her hand, and Tapson would fire again, hitting her in the hand. Proving to be one extremely tough woman, she would scramble over a fence and hide in the trees, waiting for Tapson to leave. She then saw a light in the distance and went to it. This led her straight to a rural home, where the police were called, and Tapson was arrested. It's heavily believed Tapson and Christie may have crossed paths at some point. Christie was very active in the developmentally disabled community and frequented area group homes, including the one Tapson had worked at in Grand Forks, to visit friends. Tapson moved to Montana in June of 1996, four months before Christie disappeared. But there is evidence to suggest he was in the Grand Forks area around the time of October 3rd. I've seen a few places that Christie supposedly had a boyfriend named Todd, which is Tapson's middle name, but I've never seen that from an official source. I'm also not sure if that was possibly the name of the unnamed boyfriend that Christie was allegedly looking for the night she disappeared. Tapson is also a person of interest in the 1994 death of Renee Lynn Nelson, a 22-year-old developmentally disabled woman from Moorhead, Minnesota. She was last seen alive in October of 1994, walking down the street in Moorhead. Her body was found 15 miles south of Moorhead in the Red River on March 6, 1995. Renee's body was badly decomposed, and the cause of death is unknown. Investigators would state that some evidence was found at the scene, but never specified to the nature of it. Clay County investigators would be able to find connections between Tapson and the Moorhead developmentally disabled community, as well as place him in the area at the time of Renee's disappearance, but have never been able to firmly place him as a suspect. Several years prior, in 1987, 23-year-old Carla Beth Anderson went missing from her Wadena, Minnesota apartment after being dropped off by her parents after a family dinner. There's not much information on her case, and no body has ever been found. Investigators, however, did take a look at Tapson in this case as well, 
but it's never been confirmed, from what I could find, that a link was found between the area and Tapson around that time. Tapson was ultimately sentenced to 75 years in a Montana prison. Detective Mike Scholes would speak with him several times, on and off in the early 2000s, but Tapson would always maintain his innocence, in Christie's disappearance and any other case he was involved in, including the one he was convicted of. Scholes would tell the Herald in 2021 that Tapson would maintain a calm and polite demeanor through all their interviews, but every time it would be increasingly clear that his story was inconsistent and he was telling the police easily debunked lies. A polygraph also failed to clear him as a suspect. Eventually, Tapson would begin to complain that even though he had answered all the investigators' questions, they clearly still believed he was guilty. It was at this point that it became clear they would get nothing out of him, and Scholes never visited him again. When asked if he thought Floyd Thompson was responsible, Scholes would state, quote, I wasn't there, but I would say that the circumstances would indicate that he did. I would also say that nobody else has surfaced. There isn't any significant circumstantial, physical, or anything else right now. And so that's going against him. But to come right out and say he did it, I don't know for sure. I'm assuming he did, but that's basically an assumption. That isn't 100%. And even with the confession, you still got to prove it. So to say with absolute certainty, there's no way I can say that. When speaking on the connection between Tapson, Christie, and the other cases, Scholes would state, quote, Everything here is conjecture, but these circumstances are powerful. Keep in mind, he's also a suspect in a Moorhead, Minnesota case, where basically everything is the same, but we just changed the name. And guess who happens to be working there at the time? The case would go quiet again until 2004, when human remains were found in a ravine in rural Montana. The woman's remains were found among bones and debris, as if she had been pushed down the ravine and left there. Eventually, forensic analysis would suggest the woman had a developmental disability of some kind, it's been noted by Detective Scholes that this was close to the same area that Floyd Tapson had taken his victim in 1998. In 2006, the remains would be tested against Christie's family, but unfortunately, no matches were found, indicating that the remains did not belong to Christie. This would strike another blow to a family who only wanted to know what happened to the girl they loved so much. Darlene Stevens, Christie's aunt, tell the Grand Forks Herald after the announcement, quote, I was relieved, but then I wasn't. It's so strange. I guess as far as we know, she's alive, until we know differently. You want to hold on to that hope that she is alive, but there's no way she'd be alive and in her right mind and not call. No way. It's at this juncture that any publicly known movement on Christie's case begins to fade, that is, until this very month, August 2022. According to the Grand Forks Herald, on Tuesday, August 9th, investigators conducted an excavation in the 1,000 block of First Avenue North in Grand Forks after receiving information that the body of Christy Nickel may have been buried near the foundation of the residence when it was constructed. Two cadaver dogs from Valley Water Rescue were deployed at the site and showed positive indicators of human remains. The Grand Forks Police Department, North Dakota Bureau of Criminal Investigations, Grand Forks County Sheriff's Office, and Grand Forks Public Works all took part in the excavation. But unfortunately in the end, 
the dig turned up no results. Grand Forks Police Lieutenant Jeremy Moe would tell the press, quote, We went down to where it appeared that the earth below was not disturbed. At this point, we can do a review of the case again and consider any other alternative directions we can go with this. We're always asking the public for any additional tips that we can follow up, and I think that's what got this recent activity started. There has been a big push in recent years by the Grand Forks Police to solve local cold cases. Most stated that they were led to this particular spot by a community member who had worked at the site in 1996 when the foundation had been dug. And he thought that Christie may have been buried there. What led him to this conclusion was not specified. Some articles did indicate that this location was not far from where Christie and her family lived at the time. While there has been a tiny bit of movement and a renewed push for unsolved cases in Grand Forks, Christie's family still feels the frustration at police and what they feel like was a slow start to solve her case in the early days of Christie's disappearance. With Mike Nickel, Christie's father, telling the Herald in 2021, quote, They could have done more investigation, but they didn't. If they had taken that report that night, I could see something happening. But you know, within 24 hours. I mean, you could be anywhere in 24 hours. Lonnie, Christie's brother, would state, quote, There's so many things. We just don't know what to believe and what not to believe. It's just hard to say. We really don't know. Detective Mike Scholes is now retired, but the case still follows him. He would tell the Herald in 2021, quote, I've been gone for a decade now, but once it's in your blood, it's always there. With at least one person coming forward in recent weeks, there seems to be hope that people are still paying attention to Christie's case, and there's still a very real chance that after almost 26 years, someone could come forward and still crack this case wide open. Until that happens, though, we're still only left with theories. While not initially the first thought by investigators, the prevailing theory for several years now has been that Christie most likely met with foul play. On top of that, Floyd Tapson has been the prevailing person of interest since 1998. Tapson had ties to the area and was known to be around Grand Forks in the time that Christie disappeared. On top of that, we know he raped and attempted to murder at least one other developmentally disabled woman and has been linked to the Moorhead, Minnesota area around the same time that Renee Nelson, another developmentally disabled woman, went missing before being found dead several months later. Furthermore, Christie had frequented several group homes in the area, including the one that Tapson worked at. There is some unverified talk that Christie was dating a man named Todd, which is Tapson's middle name, but early reports also state the boyfriend was questioned and cleared, which makes me think the man was almost certainly not Tapson. The boyfriend essentially disappears from reports after about two years anyway, so I wonder if the individual was mislabeled early on. Just wanted to clear all that up real quick. Back to Tapson, though. A polygraph did clear him of any involvement. However, we all know how I feel about those anyway unreliable, thus inadmissible. I try not to directly point my finger at who I think is responsible in these cases, as I usually have less information than investigators, so I certainly don't know all the facts. In Tapson's case, I'm not going to straight claim he's responsible, however, and excuse my language here, 
The guy is a cowardly and vile piece of shit who clearly preys on those he thinks can't take care of themselves. The fact he verifiably attacked one woman, was in the area when another disappeared, and was in the area when Christy disappeared, I truly feel like there's a very, very high likelihood that he was involved. Unfortunately, like the coward he is, if he is truly responsible, he clearly will never own up to it. So I can only hope that other evidence that can finally link him to Christy will one day arise. Looking at other foul play angles, there's not really much to go on. While there was just a dig, because someone claimed Christie's remains could possibly be under a house they worked on in 1996, we don't know enough else about what drew the tipster to that conclusion. Could it have something to do with those two men that Christie turned in for a drug deal? Maybe, but unfortunately we don't really know anything more about that either, as Mike's mention of it in the 2021 article is the first I've ever seen. The only other option we could entertain is that someone else, who is yet unknown to investigators, committed the crime, and has since remained off the radar. Which is possible. We just don't have much else to work with on it. Then we do have the guy who claimed to see Christy a few days after she was reported missing. She was allegedly with a group of people in almost the same area she was sighted in. According to the witness, Christy became annoyed and was unconcerned about the fact that she had been reported missing when the man approached her. This does seem a bit weird to me, as Christie's father did state that Christie always let him know where she was, and in this case, she would have gone over a week without telling him, and then was never seen again. I bring all this up because I did mention this witness earlier, but I don't really know where to fit it into theories without going off on too wild of a speculation. Just doesn't make a lot of sense to me all around. Outside of foul play, there's a theory that Christy could have left of her own accord, but nothing really supports this, and everyone who knows her claims that would be completely unlike her. The last theory is the possibility that she fell into the Red River. The area where she was last seen is right by the river, and it's been reported that she was upset when she left the area. Could she have been lost in her own thoughts and at some point stopped paying attention to where she was going and fell in? Maybe. It's certainly possible. I don't think the idea of her falling in can be completely dismissed. However, search efforts have always turned up no sign of Christie, so again, it's another area without any further evidence. This October will mark 26 years since Christie Nickel seemingly vanished into thin air. 26 years since she played her last game of bingo. 26 years since her bubbly, social personality was enjoyed by those around her and 26 years since she left her home and said goodbye to her father for the last time. I obviously have no love for those who prey on others, and I have an even deeper disdain for those who prey on someone with a trusting nature with whom they can easily manipulate. If this is what happened to Christy Nickel, be it at the hand of Floyd Tapson or someone else, then there is a very special place in the abyss for that individual. But even if that isn't what happened, the fact remains that an energetic, young woman, who never let a disability slow her life down, has been missing for almost 26 years. A daughter, a sister, a niece and a friend has been missing for almost 26 years. It's long past time that she be found. 
when last seen, Christy Nickel was described as a Caucasian female with brown hair and bluish-greenish eyes. She's 5 foot 3 inches tall and weighs 101 pounds. There is no description of what she was wearing at the time. Christy Nickel suffers from a mild developmental disability. Although socially capable, she has the mental capacity of a 10-year-old. She was last seen walking away from the area of South 3rd Street in Grand Forks, North Dakota, on October 3rd, 1996, at approximately 8 p.m. If she was alive today, Christy Nickel would be 45 years old. Foul play is suspected in her disappearance. If you have any information on the disappearance of Christy Nickel, please contact the Grand Forks Police Department at 701-787-8000. You can also submit a tip via their Facebook page or at their website, at www.grandforksgov.com or you can submit a tip via the TIP 411 app. Furthermore, if you have information on the disappearance and death of Renee Lynn Nelson, please contact the Clay County Sheriff's Office in Minnesota at 218-299-5151. If you have any information on the disappearance of Carla Beth Anderson, please contact the Wadena, Minnesota Police Department at 218 218- 631-7700. If you wish to let me know what you think happened, have case suggestions or comments, or just want to follow me and the show on social media, I can be found on Instagram at Midwest Mystery Files, Twitter at Files Midwest, and on Facebook by searching for Midwest Mystery Files. You can also email me at Midwest Mystery Files Pod at gmail.com. I do also post photos and sometimes links relevant to each case on social media, mainly on Facebook and Instagram. Lastly, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and now Spotify, please feel free to rate and review the show. This helps make the show more visible in searches and, more importantly, helps bring attention to the cases I cover. Thank you to all who have done so already. Take care, everyone, and I will see you all next time.